where I'd carved out with you. I'm so thankful, God, that you found me, that you touched me, that when I couldn't go any further, you lifted me up and your spirit, God, was there. I'm so thankful for every time I felt the glory of God. I'm so thankful, Lord. I worship you tonight. And I give you praise and I give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for worshiping. Thank you, praise team, for leading us in worship. And you can be seated tonight. So very thankful for all of you that are here and for all the help that we have. Thankful for, of course, Sister Hannah leading up the worship team while Sister Nikki is in, incapacitated at the moment. But we're glad that Sister Nikki made it. I'm glad that she made it tonight. And we're very excited about this baby that's coming. And we're just excited about what God has for the future of this group. And I love you guys very much. And I'm going to speak to you tonight from a not necessarily, i got to be honest with you, not primarily from the Bible tonight. Sometimes uh, when you are a preacher and you preach a lot, as I have the privilege to do, um, sometimes there's just things that jump out at you from a different source. But we are going to read a scripture tonight. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, and it's a pretty famous portion of scripture. One that uh, is not often quoted on a, like an inspirational card, not like John 3.16. But it says, you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. So just let me pull that first little part out. You just kind of out, lift it out, and let's think about that. Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Now, Jesus was telling his disciples this, and they certainly were. Uh, hated in their generation and in their day and age. They were hated of a lot of people. However, I do think that this, these words can apply true across societies and across time and across generations. And I think you can look into our generation today and you can certainly see the beginnings of a hatred for the Christian faith you can begin to see a hatred toward the things of God and the understanding um, that people have that if you are a Christian, you should be silenced or you should be not allowed to speak or not allowed to really are hardly even exist. And let me just, I, I know that I listen to a lot of political stuff, but let me just bring in one political Thing there was there's a lady running for president in the Democratic Party. Her name is um, Christian Gillibrand. She's probably not going to win, but she's 
pretty she's you know they have to the democrat you know as our political system works you have to compete within your party to then run so she's probably not going to win the party's nomination but but she's out there she's a senator right now so she's not a nobody and she went on and was doing this interview and she said that if you believe that abortion is wrong and when she says abortion she means up until the very point of birth she's not talking about when it's still unrecognizable she's talking about like sister nikki right now when the baby could live outside of the womb immediately she's talking about abortion up to that point she said if if you believe that for religious reasons you should not have a voice to even debate we should eliminate the voice to speak you should not hold political office you should not be on the courts you should not come to a town hall meeting and voice your opinion because there are just some things that cannot be allowed in the public debate she said like racism so she was accusing this very christian principle of god created life of being equal to the evil of racism and just like we wouldn't let a racist speak in public we're not going to let someone that's pro-life speak in public i mean that's it so it's interesting that this kind of hatred is out there. That these mainstream politicians, I mean, in the Senate, she's the senator from New York, feel this way about us, about people that hold really not that controversial of a view that uh, abortion is wrong because it's killing a baby. Killing is wrong. That's not that controversial. Killing is wrong. And so we hold that very, a very foundational view. And people are saying, no, you are the one that is bigoted or that is hateful and that you are actually morally inferior because you believe what God says and because you draw the line where God draws the line. However, for the most part, we can see it kind of coming on the horizon, but for the most part, as a society, we are relatively free and we're very blessed to be able to live for God and without being really persecuted. However, there's going to come a day in everybody's life, in your life and in my life, when you're going to have to take a stand for God. There's going to come that day. It's going to happen. You can commit all you want, but eventually it's going to come a time where you, the rubber meets the road, where you've got to put your money where your mouth is. One of my favorite stories is the story of Mordecai in the book of Esther. How many have ever read the book of Esther? Or at least heard the story of Esther? It's one of my favorite Bible stories. So if you've been in this youth group any while at all, you've heard me preach about it a lot. I love it. It's one of my favorite Bible stories ever. Because Mordecai is such an interesting character because he made the decision. He said, I am not going to bow down to Haman when Haman goes by. Now, Haman was the second in command of all the kingdom. He was a high political figure, and he got it in his head that when he drove by, everybody needed to bow to him. And because he was so politically powerful, that's what happened. People would just bow down, and no one had thought twice about denying that right or that practice to him. And so Mordecai, the Bible doesn't say how long, but he didn't do it. And Haman didn't notice. It was like his own private 
battle. His own private, like, resistance. I'm not going to bow. And nobody really noticed. It went on for a while, and he didn't bow. No one noticed. Went on for a while. It didn't say how long, but it said that Haman had to be alerted. He had to be told. Somebody came and said, hey, Haman, you know when you pass by, notice next time this guy who you probably don't even know his name, but his name's Mordecai, he doesn't bow to you. He doesn't bow to you. Because he believed he was a Jew. He believed in the one true God that you only bow to God, not to man. And so he was doing this for his convictions, but his convictions came under attack one day. So he was fine to hold a private conviction. He was fine to believe it sincerely in his heart. He was taught right. He believed it. But then there was some outside pressure put on him, and he had to make a decision on what he was going to do. It came to a decision point to where the private faith that he had was being pushed into the public realm. And that's, I think, when this verse kicks in, you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Not the minute that you believe, not the minute that you get the Holy Ghost, not the minute that you are faithful to church, but if you keep living for God, there's going to come a day when maybe not the whole society and you're on trial in the town hall for what you believe, but there could be a conversation where somebody looks at you and they begin to put pressure on you for what you believe. And they begin to put pressure on you for what you stand for. You get into a room with some friends and something begins to happen that you know good and well should not happen. And then there you are and you're going to have to walk out and be that guy or that girl that spoils all the fun. That's the church mouse. That's goody two shoes. And you've got now the rubber has met the road. And now you're faced with Matthew 10, 22 is real because I'm going to be hated of all men for your namesake because I can not go along to get along anymore. I had a private devotion, but then there came a day when it became public, when somebody confronted me and I had to make a decision about what I was going to do. How brave do you think you are in those decisions? Now, here's what here's where I really came across this message. It was a book that I was reading about a study. It was a, a book about how certain moments define our life, and it's just kind of one of those books, businessy, self-helpy kind of books. It was pretty good, but this one part just really transformed my thinking because there was a study done by these, I'm going to use these four girls because they're right in a line. There was a study done by this psychologist, and so they had four people right in a row, and the first three were in on it. They were part of the, they were part of the team. So they knew. They, they were together. And then this person was the person that we were studying. They were our lab rat. So Olivia, in, the, in this example, she would be our lab rat. And so what they would do is they would say, they would on the screen, they would flash a, a screen that was kind of like that, except it was all one color, and it was very clearly, it was the color red. It was just a red screen. They would just, they put up that red screen. And then the researcher, which was going to be me in this case, would go down. Now remember, these three are in on it. And they would say, what color do you think that is? And the first one would say orange. And she's thinking, that's, that's red. And then they go to the next one and they would say orange. And she's thinking, what on earth? And then the third one is she'd say orange. 
And then you get to, they all knew it. They know that it's red, but they were told to lie. That's part of the study. And then it gets to this person who's free and clear to say whatever she believes. And you know what 90% of people do in that situation? They say orange. Because they think either I'm crazy or I don't want to be the person that stands out too much. So it just really started me to think about being the person that's hated of all men for his name's sake. That it's going to look a lot like that study. Is everybody around you is going to be saying one thing. It's orange. It's orange. It's orange. And then it's going to come down to you. And you can have your private conviction that it's red all day long. But what matters is what you say. What's recorded is what you actually take a stand for. Because it doesn't matter that your eyes work right and that your mind works right and that you see and that you have. You're not colorblind. You know that that's red. But when it comes down to it, you're going to just say, orange. Because of the pressure. Because that's just how we work. That's a fallen nature. That's why it's so powerful when people get together and there can be such a thing as group thinking. People stop thinking for themselves. They start thinking like the whole group. And, you know, everybody's bowing down. Why are we bowing to this cat? He's just nobody. He's not even the king. Why are we bowing to him? Nobody thought about it. Everybody did it, but Mordecai, he, he had, now I'm sure there were other people. There were plenty of Jews in that region. Let's just, we're, I'm going to add a little bit to the Bible here, just to, in our imagination. I'm assuming that there's somebody else that had the same idea as him. But when it came time to make it public to where I'm going to stand, and everybody else is going to bow. They didn't. Because they were probably with the 90 percentile of people that just do what everybody else does and say, well, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm off or maybe I'm not seeing something right or maybe this isn't that big a deal, so I'm just going to do it. And I don't think I need to tell you as high schoolers about the power of peer pressure. You all know how powerful peer pressure can be. And I didn't even have to give you that study. We could have saved those Harvard professors a lot of time and just ask a high school student, does peer pressure work? And everybody would have said, yes, it works. It works more than you think. So then how, here's my point, how are you going to take a stand for God in this day? And here's who I'm preaching to tonight. I'm preaching to young people that desire to live for God. If, if you don't have a desire to live for God, I can beg you and beg you to repent and you'll never do it. You've got to have a desire. So I'm preaching to somebody that has a desire to live for God. If you are not living for God right now, I've, I've preached it till I'm blue in the face. Repent. And let God work in your life. But I'm here to reach to somebody that's made up in your mind, I'm going to live for God. Now, we're all on different levels as far as some of us have lived for God longer. Some of us have accepted more of that call. Some of us still have some things we've got to iron out. I'm not here to preach to perfect people, but I'm here to preach to people that have a desire in their heart to live for God. To say, I want to live for God. But you're going to have to, if you want to live for God, you're going to have to make that stand alone where you're hated of all men for my namesake. Maybe not all men in the community right away, but you're going to have to look somebody in the eye that absolutely disagrees with you and thinks you are foolish and dumb and say, no, this is what I'm going to do. Now, how do you do that? How do you make that stand? How do you have the courage like Mordecai so that you can stand in that day? Because you can preach it all day long. You've got to stand. But the reality is you are wired to fold. You are wired to bow down. You are wired. That's just the 
the nature of humanity that most people would do just like that person in the research and say orange because that's what everybody else did. So don't feel bad that you don't have to think that you have the strength in and of yourself because that's how we all are. I I can be pretty honest with you. I do not like confrontation. And I'm not a very confrontational person. I like people to get along. And so it's hard to have a tough conversation. It's hard to look somebody in the face and make them feel uncomfortable. And sometimes those things have to be done. But it is not in my nature. So then how? If it's not in your nature to be that confrontational person and you're in that 90 percentile, how are you going to stand for God in the face of your family or in the face of your friends or in the face of the cafeteria at schoolroom? How are you going to do it? And that's what this book really challenged me about. It said because you have to practice courage. You have to practice courage. And I thought that was interesting. And they gave some examples. In the 1960s in Nashville, Tennessee, the civil rights movement, they staged a sit-in of segregated lunch counters. So there was a thing in the 60s where, uh, like a lunch counter, we really don't know what that is today, but like a kind of a, there wasn't much fast food, so it was a restaurant and they would have a counter where you, you, didn't, you just kind of sat yourself and you just walked in and sat down and then you would get food and and then you would, if you've ever been to Country Kitchen in Pine Bluff, they kind of have that same look. That's what I'm imagining. I've been to some places like that. They have a counter. We don't really, McDonald's doesn't have any counters. You just order and get our food. So we don't really understand this. But it was, you had to walk in and sit down. Well, they, they would serve in the South, in the segregated South. They, it was illegal to discriminate based on a person's skin color. And so you could eat at the restaurant, you could take it to go if you were a non-white person, but you could only sit at the counter if you were white. Of course, that was a horrible and evil law. And so these, this group of activists, led by preachers and Christians, people tend to forget that, but led by Christians, because pretty much when there's someone fighting for righteousness, there's a Christian close by. And so led by Christians, they said, this is not right. We are all created in the image of God. So what we are going to do is we're not going to firebomb the place. We're not going to picket them and throw things in their window and kill everyone that's in there. We are going to obey the law, except for this one law, but we're going to obey all the other laws. We are going to dress up. Nobody wore T-shirts. They, they looked like they, they said, they said I, we want you to look like you're going to church. So they dressed up like they were going to church. And they went in there, and they didn't make a lot of noise, but they sat at the counter and waited to be served. And, of course, they weren't served, so they stayed there for hours. Now, they weren't loitering because they had the money in their pocket. They were trying to um, get them to serve them, and they wouldn't. So it was creating this disruption. So they wanted to bring attention to how ridiculous this law was. But they knew something, that it would be very, very hard in that moment because what what happened was the first day it kind of didn't go, it didn't know, it caught everybody by surprise so that nothing really happened. But then the second day, then there were some counter protesters that came and they decided that they were going to be in that restaurant too. And when, that, when they sat down, they were going to start calling them names. They were going to start spitting on them. They were going to start pushing them, pulling at their clothes and just trying to harass them generally. And so what the organizers had known, though, was that this was going to happen. They prepared for the fact that there was going to be some uncomfortable moments. You're not going to confront this thing. You're not going to do what's right without an uncomfortable moment. You're going to have to have a moment of confrontation or else you're not going to get anything done. 
You're going to have that. It's not just like, I believe this is wrong in my heart. It's I've got to confront this. I've got to do right in the face of evil. I've got to do what's right even when it's not comfortable. So they knew that. So what they did is they would practice. Before they ever walked into that store, they practiced. They hired actors. And they set up a fake lunch counter, and they sat there, and they brought in the actors, and the actors called them all sort of names and spit on them and pulled their clothes, and they practiced standing when it was hard. They practiced. They did it intentionally. They knew it was coming, and so they practiced. They didn't just go off with this high kind of hopes and dreams and just say, well, it's just going to work out. They had an intentional desire to see justice accomplished, to see righteousness prevail, to see the right thing done, and they practiced it. They practiced their courage. They practiced their courage. They didn't, they did that, when they were in that situation, they had been there before. When they were in that moment where it was confrontational, where it was uncomfortable, where it was hard to do what was right, where it was uh, you would might fear would rise up and you would want to run away. I know I would have. Wouldn't want to be. I don't like to cause a ruckus. So they had to practice. They had to get their mindset right. And so I begin to think about you. I begin to think about my young people. And I begin to think about myself. We're, we're trying to live for God. And the Bible promises us that we're going to be hated of all men for his name's sake. It promises that there's going to be those confrontations. It promises us that you're not going to be able to live a holy lifestyle and somebody not come up and start poking at it and saying, hey, what in the world is that for? You're not going to be able to, to put holy things in front of your face without that movie coming on in a public setting when you're going to have to walk out and everybody's going to be like, hey, man, what was that about? That's not cool. You're not going to be able to take a stand against filthy language and dirty jokes without one being told right in front of your face, looking for a response, asking for laughter, and you're going to have to say, that's not cool, man. It's not enough just to believe it and laugh secretly. Oh, well, I was laughing not... I was just kind of laughing but in my heart huh God's no what you say matters you can't just believe it and hold it in your heart and then just expect everything to work out there's going to have to come a time when you confront this thing there's going to have to come a time when you come up against really what you believe and you're going to have to say no this is what I believe in this is where I'm going to live my life. This is how I'm going to do it. And in order for you to make it through those moments then you had better practice You'd better predetermine in your heart and in your life that this is what I'm going to do. And this is what I'm going to do when it gets tough. And when it gets hard, I'm still going to live for God. And when it becomes so uncomfortable, I'm still going to live for God. But how are you going to do that? Not just by wishful thinking. Not just by hop skipping along right on into your life and just thinking everything will be fine and everybody will be so excited that God's called me into the ministry or that God's doing this in my life or that I've given up this entertainment or that I've walked through this and God's begin to deal with me at NAYC or camp and God fill me with the Holy Ghost. Not everybody's going to be excited that you've made a commitment to God. There's going to be some people that actually are not happy about it and that they will actively push you. They will actively push you because your desire and your conviction convicts them. Now, I don't know. I mean, this is, once again, going back to my story of Mordecai, I don't know who told on him, but it could have been it was his fellow people. It was his co-workers. 
Maybe they were Jews too. I don't know. But it could be. It wouldn't surprise me. They knew what they should be doing, but they didn't have the courage to do it. So maybe they just took him down. I don't know. But somebody had to say, I, 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 it's not just cool that you have that private conviction. I want to take that down. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like that you're standing for righteousness. I don't like the way that you live. I want to test you. I want to push you. How do we practice? How do we practice? I was thinking about that, preparing for this message. How do we practice? How do we practice doing those things in life that are very hard? It's how, how do we make sure that when those moments come, that we have the courage to do what's right, that we do not fold under the pressure, that we do not fall in line with those things. And it just came to me. It's really not that revelatory. It's not some big revelation. But we as apostolics, we practice at the altar. We practice at the altar. No matter what you have to face going forward, you better make sure that you have first practiced at an altar. You better make sure that when you come and you kneel down and you pray and you respond in service or you have that prayer time alone, that you make sure that you are walking out in your spirit. God, this is how I'm going to do it. This is what I'm going to do with your help. The next time that that situation happens, God, I'm not doing it again. That's what repentance is. It's practicing living righteously at an altar. It's coming down and saying, God, I'm not just asking for forgiveness so that I can go back and repeat it again. It's God, I caved under pressure and I laughed when I shouldn't and I told a joke when I shouldn't and I went to a place I knew would be wrong and I was there and I was uncomfortable and it was bad, but I will not go back. If you will give me the strength, the next time it comes around, I will stand. And you practice being strong at the altar. You practice when you're there all by yourself and it becomes real to you and you say, God, you've got to help me. God, you've got to touch me. God, you've got to lift me up. And you let the altar be the place where you practice. Because you will not do it in public if you have not done it first at an altar. You can, you can conform somewhat by peer pressure, positive peer pressure here. But positive peer pressure is not enough to keep you. Because there will come a day when you are isolated. And none of the friends that are so valuable to you right now are sitting around you. And none of the young adults that are so supportive of you will be around you. And you will have to stand on your own. And the only person that will be in your corner will be God, who you have hopefully developed a relationship with so that you can practice at an altar. Practice makes perfect and the perfecting and the sanctification of your heart. That's what sanctification means, the perfecting of your heart. The sanctification of your heart only comes by practice. It only comes by practicing. And as apostolics and as Christians, we practice at the altar. We practice coming before the Lord and saying, God, I need you to touch me. I need you to help me. I need you to strengthen me. I need you to bless me. I do not know how I'm going to withstand this temptation, but with your help, I will. That's what it looks like to practice. That's why we, it's not because we're, you're trying to earn anything through prayer. It's not like you're trying to earn anything through doing your word before world. We're trying to cultivate a, an, an atmosphere where you can practice living for God in a place that is guaranteed 
guaranteed to succeed, and that's in his presence. And when you are in his presence, you're going to succeed. That's what God wants from you. That's why he desires to fill you with the Holy Ghost, because that's the best environment in which to live for him. And haven't you, you know what I'm talking about. You've, when you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, and you've come to an altar, and you've filled your life full of all kinds of, of dreams and ambitions, and you're leaving that conference, or you're leaving that prayer room, maybe at home, and you feel the power and the, and, the, and the anointing of God, and you're like, I can do anything. Bring on the school year. I can do anything. But as you go a little further, and you get a little further away from that moment, and the peer pressure begins to set in, and you're hearing orange, 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 and then it comes time for you to speak, and it's been a while since you've heard the reassurance of the Lord that says, go ahead and say what you think. I've got your back. Go ahead and take a stand for me. Go ahead and stand up, because you will be hated of all men for my name's sake, but I am with you even until the end of the world. And if you have lost that connection and it's been drawn out since you've practiced, uh, try walking out onto the basketball court after all uh, summer long, not practicing at all, and see if you make the team. Try taking the SAT and have never studied, didn't even go to 10th grade. Try doing anything that takes any kind of skill or any kind of importance without practice, and you will not succeed. Living for God is no different. You say, oh, God's called me. God's called me to preach. You know where you practice to preach? You practice at an altar. Oh, God's called me to sing. Well, you know where you practice to sing? Yeah, you practice on the keyboard, and yeah, you practice with your vocals, but more than that, you practice at an altar. There's plenty of talented people, but there's just a few that have an anointing from God because they took the time to practice at an altar, because they took the time to be the person that God's called them to be, and you practice at an altar because that's what it takes to live for God. It's not doesn't take just mental assent. It doesn't just take, oh, I, I believe this is true. I think this is true. I'm going to hold it in my heart. I'll always know that there's one God. I'll always know the right way to be saved. I'll always know I've got to get the Holy Ghost. But if you do not come in contact with the power and the anointing of God and practice, you will not succeed on the court. You will not succeed on the field of battle unless you know exactly this is what I'm going to do. So when you come to God in prayer, it's not just God, I need this and God, I need this. It's God, I'm up against something that's hard. And I'm up against something that I don't understand how I'm going to get through it. And God, I know you've been calling me to the mission field. Or I know you've been calling me to go to Bible school. Or I know you've been calling me to live for you with all my heart, all my life. But I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. I don't, know, I don't know how to get those things to happen. Absolutely you don't. That's because God's dreams are bigger than your dreams. And that's where we practice. We practice at an altar. It's been in my life. You think you understand how to be married? No. No, you don't. It's, it's, it's difficult. It's hard. It's weird. It's complicated. The, the movies, they always end at the marriage. They don't really go much further than that because it's complicated. And they don't want to talk about that. So you make these big, important life decisions. And you say, oh, Brother Jared, if I marry the right person, it'll be easy. I married the right person. I absolutely married the right person. And you know what the right person does for you? The right person pushes you and challenges you to be better. 
You know what? When I preach a terrible sermon, none of you tell me. None of you. You just smile and say nothing. I might hear about it three weeks later when you talk about how many times I say I'm, you're closing or when Dalton tells me how many times I said the word right. Jared, you, Brother Jared, you said right 95 times tonight. Other than, But that was six weeks after the fact. Sister Nikki is much more alive with her feedback. That did not make any sense. That's not a, you didn't do a very good job tonight. That's what the right person does for you. The right person pushes you and challenges you to be better. To say, hey, you're, you're on the wrong track. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Get it together, man. She's never really said that to me, but that's what I hear when she says it. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, go, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You do know. Yeah. Well, it feels that harsh. It's complicated, like I said. You know what I mean? That's why it's so difficult when you make these big life decisions. And then you're walking through. And I had no clue how to be a husband. I had no clue how to give of myself selflessly forever. Never thinking of myself first again. It's a big decision. Which is why we are so cautious when we counsel you or talk to you about who you're liking and who you're dating. Because you can't just enter into that any old way. You can't just give yourself completely to somebody else. And then put their needs consistently every day, 24-7, above your own needs. You don't know how to do that because it is against your nature. Which is why more than more marriages end in divorce than don't. Because it's not in your nature to give that way. It's not in your nature to, to be able to give that tough love to somebody. To be able to say, hey, you need to look out for that. You need to watch out for that. You need to handle that a little bit differently. You need to, it's not, that's not an easy conversation to have. You understand, and I'm kind of picking on Sister Nikki a little bit. I hope she forgives me, but it's not, it's not difficult in the sense of it's like, it's not that it's just hard for, to be married other than my flesh gets in the way because I can be selfish and I can do things that, I, that, that aren't really best for me or best for her. And so we've got to work through those things. and you've, We've got to forgive one another. And we've got to be gracious to one another. And how do you do that? You know how? You know how you practice being married when you have no clue how to do it? You practice at an altar. You'll say, oh, Brother Jerry, that's, that's old school. You need to, you know, that's, that's, that's what this world will say. Oh, that's old school. You need to live with somebody six or eight years before you get married so that you know. No, no, no. That's, I mean, that's what they think. That's what you're going to hear at college if you go to a secular university. That's what everybody's going to believe. How do you know you can be married? You've got to practice marriage, which basically means be married and then just don't have the paperwork. And don't stand before God and don't have the commitment. Don't, don't commit to your whole life because that person may be whatever. They may be bizarre. They may be weird. You just need to practice. That's not how we practice. We practice at an altar because we're not working on somebody else. We're working on ourselves, saying, God, you've got to help me be the spouse that I need to be. You've got to help me be a whole person when I walk into marriage because I'm going to have to constantly sacrifice and lay down my life. So you've got to help me. 
And now I'm about to be a father, and so that's challenging me even more. God, I don't know how to be a father, and I can't get any practice being a father. I can't really, I mean, I I feel like sometimes I get to practice on some of y'all, but I mean, really, the the decision's not in my court. I send you off, you get off, and and we go on a youth trip, and then I send you back to mom and dad, and they get to do all the hard work. They get to really walk with you through all those different things, and I just get to partner with them, and I enjoy that, and it's a blessing and honor for me. But when it comes down to my kid, it's my decision, my life, my everything will affect that young person, this precious child that will be brought into my life, and I don't know how to do that. I don't know. Just like you don't know what your career is going to look like or who you're going to marry or how you're going to be able to live for God, how you're going to be able to get married and stay married and raise a family, you don't know. So you know how we practice? You know how we practice all of these hard things and these things in life that are fraught with so much danger that the world is constantly getting wrong and walking out on their family and walking out on, and ending up addicted and, and uh, just consumed and outside of the will of God and outside of a good, blessed life. You know how they get there. They don't practice but we know how to practice we practice at an altar we practice at an altar we bring everything to the altar and say God I don't know how this next phase of my life is going to work out I don't know what I'm going to do after high school I don't know how I'm going to stand in the face of all this pressure and all of this stuff I don't know God how I'm going to do it but Lord I just need you to help me I need you to touch me I need you to touch me one more time I got to get down and I've got to say Lord I'm not the husband that I need to be but I want you to help me to be better God I don't know how to be a father but I've got to practice right here at an altar so that every day when I get up I have practiced being the man that I need to be at an altar and every day when you go to school you've already practiced God help me to be the witness that I need to be because I've practiced at an altar because it's not going to happen just by whimsical thinking oh I'll figure it out no if you're going to do it right which really means if you're going to do it at all. There's no halfway living for God. If you're going to live for God, you're going to have to practice. You're going to have to practice at an altar. And I'm not just talking about this altar. I'm not just talking about a church altar. I'm not just talking about an HYC altar, although those are powerful times. I'm talking about your own altar in your life. You've got to practice. God help me. And I'm preaching to myself tonight, like I said, because I understand all too well my shortcomings and my failures. I feel it. And I think, God, I don't know what I'm doing. And some days I blow it, just like I'm sure you can think back over this last school year, and there were days that you blew it. There were days that you knew what to do and you didn't do it. Even the Apostle Paul said, that which I would do, I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Even he Blew it. But it's those days when you say, don't get discouraged and get beat down and say, no, I've just got to go back and I've got to practice one more time. Yeah, I lost that match. I didn't show up with my best. I lost that battle, but I'm going to go back to an altar and I'm going to practice one more time. Now, if they could help me on the music, I'm closing with this. I want you to close your eyes because I believe I'm talking to somebody that has determined in their heart to live for God. 
I think I'm talking to a group of young people. That, you know, we're on different levels. Maybe there's even been, you haven't really maybe made a commitment yet fully in your heart, but you're here because you have a desire to live for God. And you look at somebody's life, you look at somebody in the church, or you look at one of the young adults, and you say, I, I don't know if I could ever live that way. I don't know if I could ever be that committed. I don't know if I could ever have a family like they have. I don't know if I could ever have a marriage. I don't know if I could ever be the parent that they could be. I just don't know. I don't know if I could have the ministry. I don't know if I could have the faithfulness. You know how you get there? By practice. You get there by practice. So I want you to just begin right now. I want you to just begin to pray. Because I want the Holy Ghost just to minister into this room. I'm not trying to do anything weird. I just, I just want to wait on the Lord to talk to somebody. Because I really felt strongly that there is somebody here. Maybe you've never actually received the gift of the Holy Ghost. You've been around it. You've maybe felt its pull or tug on your life. But tonight God could fill you with the Holy Ghost. Because you've got to get specific with God. So that's what I want you to think about right now before I give the altar call. I want you to think about something specific that, God, I want to improve on, and I want your help in improving on it. I'm not talking about something small because we're talking about the God of all creation. I want you to look at, in your heart and all those times that you failed, just like I'm doing right now, looking in my heart all the times that I wasn't the husband that I needed to be and all the times I think, ooh, if I was a father, I, that would have been a big mistake. God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. And I feel that way so many times about being the youth pastor, about organizing everything and, and trying to minister to you. And I think I blew that one. I lost that opportunity. I didn't do that quite right. So I've got to go back. And I don't practice my preaching. I don't practice my dodgeball skills. I don't practice my Nerf War skills. But i got to go back to where you practice doing everything that matters and that's at an altar God help me to be the husband I need to be God help me to be the youth pastor I need to be God I want to do better I want to preach better Lord I, 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 I want to sing better with the anointing I want to be a witness at my school better Lord I want to lead my P7 Bible club better God I want to start something new for you God I want to be able to stand in the face of peer pressure better the next time that thing comes on I want the strength to be able to walk out the next time that family member confronts me I want to be able to defend what I believe the next time that I'm at that situation and that peer pressure is so pressing down on me I want to have the courage to stand but Lord I'm going to start tonight by practicing and letting your presence wash over me and I want to repent and I'm going to say Lord I've messed up before but I'm going to keep on pressing on because it is your power it is your anointing that there's all the promise God we lift you up tonight if you could stand with me and make your way to this front let's find an altar tonight let's find an altar tonight I want you to begin to make a place right now I'm not just talking about this altar I'm talking about an altar in your life and somebody needs to reconsecrate and somebody needs to rededicate their life to the altar to say, I'm going to practice being what God's called me to be. I'm going to practice standing for truth. When everybody else might be against me in that moment, I'm going to take a stand and I'm going to do what's right.
find a place to pray right now. This altar's open. I'll challenge you if you'd like to come forward. But wherever you are tonight, I want you to make that determination in your heart to practice the things that really matter. You practice them at an altar. Somebody needs to build an altar right here. Somebody needs to build an altar right now. Get specific with God and say, Lord, these are the things that I have been failing at, God, but with you helping me, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to live for you in the face of all adversity. I have drawn a line. In the face of my family, even, I'm going to stand for you. I'm going to answer the call of God on my life. This has been an episode of Axiom Youth Student Ministries. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you've enjoyed and we hope you'll come back for the next one. Thank you for tuning in.